Hi everyone, it's me Jo. Today I am bringing you a fabulous conversation with the amazing Lahani Noor. Lahani Noor is someone that I connected to after actually discovering her on a BBC show called Sex on the Couch, which was about couples therapy. Um, She is a professional athlete. She is someone that became a psychotherapist and her path has really been an incredible journey because she's been able to really see life from different angles. And now that she works as a psychotherapist, um, I was really interested to discuss with her a lot of things that I'm intrigued by and therapy is something that I think we don't talk about enough and with this boom in awareness around mental well-being I wanted to delve into this area so hopefully we will continue this conversation in a few more episodes so please check back and enjoy the conversation. So, Lahani, firstly, thank you for joining me today. Um, I wanted to start off by asking you a little bit about where your story began. Gosh, yeah, of course. So, yeah, my parents were first-generation migrants. I think they came over in the 30s. Or so. Maybe, oh, they're that old. Maybe it was the 40s, I don't know. But they both passed away now. Um, but they really, uh, there wasn't an infrastructure or community when they came over here, so they were very isolated and the other few migrants that were over here at the time kind of all banded together. And um, so it meant that developmentally they didn't really integrate and they didn't really develop um, along with kind of more modern uh, migrants because there just was nothing here for them. Well, that sounds odd, doesn't it, in many ways, because there was lots of here for them because that's why they came. But there wasn't in the sense that there wasn't, um, there weren't Asian shops, there yes. weren't Asian restaurants, there weren't Asian, you know, uh, community centres or, or all of the such things. So so they were quite isolated. Um, I grew up really traditional, you know, I wore full Asian dress until I was 16. Wow, okay, okay. Yeah, I didn't, um, I, I didn't show my legs, I didn't, oh gosh, I need to turn my phone up. I didn't show my legs, I didn't wear um, um, English food or makeup. Well, we always wore makeup, we got away with that. But um, yeah, so I grew up really hugely traditional and an outsider, you know, an observer. Sometimes I think that's where the therapy comes from because when you are an outsider, you observe a lot. Yeah, yeah. I think that you, when you don't feel part of something, you assess things in a way that people it gives you kind of like an insight. Like I always think it's fascinating because people think that there are like stereotypes that go into people's choice of work. Like a lot of stylists are gay, and it's like, well, if you really think about it, if you go to school and you choose to wear a pink flamboyant handbag and you get ridiculed for it, you have like an insight into what the power of that handbag can do for other people. So it's like there's so much of that that I think plays into what people do for work and. So was religion part of that traditionalism or were you more so kind of like spiritual or how how was that? Well, religion was a massive part of my upbringing. My parents were Orthodox Muslims, hence the full traditional Asian dress. And some of their ideas about um, gender roles um, for me were really toxic. I couldn't tolerate them at all. And this, I, I called it the impending doom, you know, this idea of femininity was horrific for me. And the idea, so as a Asian Muslim girl, once you hit puberty, your whole world changes, or at least in my family, it did. So that was the point. And it was kind of a, when I was little, I really had a sense of it approaching that um, when I became a woman, my freedoms would become hugely minimized and there would be certain expectations of me <clears throat> that I didn't want to fulfill, not at all, um, which is, I think, why I pursued such a masculine line. Um, 
in, in my careers thereafter and the things that I did thereafter. Sure. Um, I, that, I don't know, Joe. You know, part of me also thinks, well, maybe I just really like to be strong and climb trees. I mean, you know, what <laughs> you know, that doesn't just belong to boys. No, exactly. It's it's funny because, like, I, I'm characterised, I think, quite feminine, but I, when I was younger, I really wanted to do more um, active things and I was quite adventurous, but I had an instant where I really hurt my legs. So I kind of became like unable to do the kind of boyish things and then I just excelled at the things that were traditionally feminine and now people just don't know what to make of me because I'm sort of this like hybrid of everything but I think why shouldn't we all be because we all actually are that but hey (laughs) absolutely I mean I I still trade whilst I was writing the book I had to lay off but you know I feel like a hybrid and I do sometimes feel still that I don't fit in or belong in in mainstream I don't want to either but do I don't label myself either I suppose um, there's a temptation, isn't it, to say that oh, if I'm fluid or I'm this or I'm that. And I think, well, I don't want to have to label myself. I just want to be able to be whatever I am or whatever version of gender that I feel I am in that moment. I guess that makes me fluid. But Yeah. Um, these words, are, they're just like reinventions of the wheel, I think, for some cases. It's like every new generation that gains like momentum, they do, they define the same thing in a different way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so too. So um, when you were quite young, I listened to an interview you did and you said you became homeless very young. Is that connected with your escaping your traditionalism? I um, left home, yeah, really young. I was <clears throat> 16, 15, like 15, 16. And I um, didn't want to... I just didn't want to do it, Joe. I couldn't believe it. And I really tried hard. And um, it's it's a tragedy in so many ways. But I just couldn't believe in the religion and the culture. And it, and it, it isn't against Islam. It would have been against any religion and any culture. I think in the... It, everything felt too restricted and too closed in for me. And I didn't have the wisdom to know what it meant. Yeah. Running sure. away and being homeless. But I did it anyway. Um and maybe that's a part of my character. Actually, I see it in my son sometimes, and it really scares me. The part of my character, which is that, yeah, this is really scary. I don't know what it's going to be like, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. Like, don't worry, just do it and then apologise later. <laughs> when I was really little, I used to say, it doesn't matter where you go in the world, there's always someone to meet you. And I think I still believe that. Yeah. Doesn't, and when I say where you go in the world, I don't necessarily even mean physical places. I mean, wherever you go in your thinking, there's mm. always to meet you. So, you know, much like yourself, Joseph, if you decided to kind of chart a new territory and really, really explore that, and there were people there to meet you in that. Yes, yeah, and I'm so excited about this new project because I feel like I get to talk more to other people that I'm inspired by, like yourself. So thank you for being a part of this. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, so you started to work in the National Association of Young People in Care quite early on after your experience of being homeless. And I think that was... I didn't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about that experience because I think it kind of was like the foundation to maybe your work now. Uh, yeah, maybe. You know, I did... Uh, I just kind of feel like I went like around in a really big circle, but I, I needed to do that to gather information, uh, although that's not what I thought I was doing at the time. You know, you kind of, you're just living or maybe not even living, but spinning out of control. But in that process of spinning out of control, you pick up some really valuable information. Yeah, I started working for NAPIC when I was volunteering when I was 16, and then when I was about 17 and a half, I think, or 18, I got the London and South Development Office role. And we were all under the age of 25, everyone who worked for NAPIC. It was funded by the Prince's Trust. And we went down there to, uh, gosh, where was it? Somewhere, is it the House of Commons or something? I don't think where it was now. I mean, it was, only, it was very young and... 
cocky and thought I owned the world. Um, but yeah, yeah. So it's a shame, really, that I didn't continue. I think I left them when I was 18. But again, as I said, I just, there was too much going on for me. And I, I, 19, maybe. I don't know how old I was. I was there for about a year and a half. And it was a really great time. We did lots of positive work. Mm. And uh, protested a lot and uh, demanded things that change, you know, that, that things change. And they did. Um, but it sounds like you were a much more mature place. Oh, I was skipped ahead, I think, because I did my schooling very early. So when I was like 10, I did my GCSEs in the UK. So I got no, I had to like fast forward things in a way. And then it just became like a strange dichotomy between like being more mature than my age and then still wanting to be like much younger than my age. So I'm still going through that now. Wow. So you did your GCSEs at 10. So you were super smart. Yeah, it was weird because like I live in a village in Brighton called Myloke. And when I went to school, they did a scheme where they wanted 10 people in my year to see if they could do their GCC. So I took it when I was 10 and I passed. And then I did um, this aim higher scheme where they made me do like uni stuff when I was 14 and 15. So by the time I had got to my secondary school, which is third world, in the country at the time they made me repeat the same GCSE but it's I've I kind of like I, I like being infantile sometimes and just being like stupid because I think when I was younger I was I did a lot before I should have but yeah yeah it's an yeah. advantage and a disadvantage I guess <laughs> sure. well it displaces you doesn't it and I suppose in some ways you're still displaced yes voluntarily, <laughs> you're voluntarily displaced now maybe you get something out of that displacement I, I mean I think about it being displaced often as well in the you know, if you do anything that's outside of the norm, you become displaced. And although it, in some ways it's not nice, in other ways you get something that you wouldn't get out of ordinary living. You get a different experience or taste of the world. Yes. And itself as well. Yes, definitely. I think so. Um, so after you, your work there, you became a social worker. Um, yeah, a residential social worker. So I worked in... Um, I did those really horrible long shifts where you do sleepovers. So I, w I did a lot of work for the Leonard Cheshire Foundation. They had a place in Bethnal Green that was, I don't know if it's still there, um, which was for the rehabilitation of the people from Broadmoor and Ransom mm -hmm. in particular. And we would do these crazy shifts where we'd start at two o'clock one day and finish at two o'clock the next day. Wow. There was a little flat on site that you could sleep in, or a room, should I say. But um, it was just, I mean, being, you know, when you're around very disturbed people, it's disturbing. Yeah, um, spent long, long periods of time with very disturbed people was just hugely disturbing. It's a bit like taking drugs, you know. You really, again, you, you move outside of the realm of normal, and you you leave work, and you're not entirely sure what's okay and what isn't because everything, all the edges go a bit blurry. Yes, you take on that energy in some regards. So, was that people struggling with addiction and or, or mental health kind of ailments from there? Yeah, so that, that particular unit was um, mental health, specific forensic mental health, so people had committed offences. And then um, moving on from there, I worked with people with drug and alcohol addiction, men with, predominantly men with drug and alcohol addictions. And um, in fact, I did a lot of work with men, really. Mm. I, think that I, I often reflect back and think, isn't that interesting? Most of the people I work with were men. So is there... I think like this week's been kind of profound in terms of the discussion that's going to start regarding mental health because uh, the TV presenter Caroline Flack just recently committed suicide yesterday and I think like we are starting to open up the conversation and talk about mental health more but how do you think we need to progress that conversation like how how can we do better? Oh gosh 
Well, you know, it's like the grassroots thing, isn't it? I suppose so my knee-jerk response is take it into schools. Let's start talking to children mm. about mental health and, and really developing some language, some safe language. Um, the, the problem with language is it's restricting and freeing, liberating at the same time. It's restricting in that if if we overuse a word, it becomes very, its interpretation becomes very limited. And mm. if we, um, when we use new words, no one knows what it means. So, you know, the, the words are useful in that they're, commonality i don't know if i've made sense there but um but we, we need to bring language and dialogue to children and actually i think we're doing an okay you know i look at my son he's 13 and his friends and they're much better at talking about mental health and they're also much better at talking about gender mm. unless it's just my son and his friends i've i've seen it in australia my um one of my good friends younger siblings um i met her when she was about five and now she's 16 and they invited me to their birthday party and they were all like interacting like all this the heterosexual cis boys were like being really tactile with the other boys and it was like some people were indistinct in their gender identity and expression it was like oh my god like i wasn't the only one doing this when i was that young it's like it's crazy to see like in 10 years how that's kind of shifted but it was really inspiring i think this younger generation is really they're getting it in a way that is amazing really <laughs> absolutely i totally agree with you it's really it's so natural isn't it so they're so accepting and um it, they're not afraid to just hold things very loosely um you know they don't at least i see that as well that they're not afraid to hold things loosely and just see see what happens in yeah. terms of your you know your gender and stuff Mental health, I don't know, you know, I think we need to stop feeling ashamed and stop shaming people for not getting things right and for failing and for making mistakes. I don't know anyone who's perfect. I don't know anyone who's never made a mistake. So, you know, we need to just get over it and and let people be. Mm. And I think that was something about Caroline Flack, wasn't it? No one would let her be. No. She'd got angry and and lashed out. And unfortunately for her, she's in a profession where she's very visible. But, you know, can can we all honestly hold our hands and say we've never behaved inappropriately, that we've never got cross and really shouted or slammed a door or broken something? Mm. I mean, you know, really, let's, let's let people have a normal range of emotions. Sure. Um, do you think there is a thread between the people with mental health um, ailments and addiction, as you've seen it, like, firsthand from that experience when you were younger? Yeah, you know, addiction. So, in my understanding, <clears throat> if someone's got an addiction... They're um, or they're cutting themselves, or they're slightly different spectrums. But if someone's cutting themselves, they've got an addiction. They're under eating, overeating, and making themselves sick, or doing anything at all like that. What they're doing is they're trying to manage difficult feelings. Mm. That's it. That's the end. Um, in its very very simplest form. So if someone's got an addiction, they're trying really really hard to manage some very very difficult emotions and those emotions might be just outside of their thinking just outside of their awareness so they're not even sure themselves what it is they're managing they just know that they're managing something um so to punish or persecute those people is particularly unkind because they're already doing everything they can do to keep themselves okay yes um i think that when people talk about mental health they kind of put it into this box that's not tangible and i think we're trying to kind of like bridge the gap more so that there you can see a tangible reason why things are happening whether it be like 
differences in our chemistry in our brains or what we're eating or or what medication we're on and I came from a family that was really like they they wouldn't take a painkiller for like my grandma had um cancer for quite a long time it was over a decade she was enduring different forms of the of cancer and she wouldn't even take painkillers so I didn't know anything about antidepressants or anti-anxiety or antipsychotics and do you think that they are important in people's well-being or do you think they're overused because I'm still learning about them and I'm I'm not really familiar with things like that but I thought it would be interesting to get your opinion yeah you know medications have so many I'm not saying you know people are on medications I'm not saying for a second stop taking medication because that would be hugely irresponsible but I think they're overused and also what we don't understand so much is the longer term effects of medication um on your physiology and on, on other capacities so for example most antidepressants want to have an impact on your capacity to have an orgasm or even be aroused. So, you know, they ha- and then, and those effects can be hugely long-term. So medications are problematic. They do have an impact on you in other ways. And we should think very carefully before we take them. And we shouldn't really know something about the bigger impact and the long-term impact of taking medications. And perhaps our uh, general practitioners need to be a little bit more savvy and know a little bit more because lots of general practitioners, GPs, don't know. They don't know the greater impact Mm. um, of medications on people's psyches. You know, also, I I recently have been, I am spiritual. I I think of my work as quite spiritual. And recently I've really been looking into shamanism a lot more. And the old shamanic belief would be that if you had a psychosis or were hearing voices or something like that, then you're filtration system was um if you like you know the, the information from the universe was somehow impaired maybe um, some other spirits were speaking to you or oh my god I'm so interested in that stuff I've been like yeah. studying all of it for for so long but it's yeah I, I I was obsessed obsessed with the idea of two-spirited because when I was trying to find a, a term to fit into when I was younger I found the word Tran with a Y. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that anymore, but all my friends that were older drag queens used to use that word willy yeah. nilly. But um, I couldn't. I didn't think that that was an appropriate term for me because I didn't feel like it had a connotation to it that made sense to what I was going through. And when I found out about two spirited, and even if you go to I don't know, like Eastern African uh, tribes before colonization, or you go to Papua New Guinea, they've got the same sort of thing where it's this almost like a spiritual enlightening with having two aspects of spirit in you male and female and I think shamanism is such uh, like the shamans were two-spirited in a lot of cases and there was always this connotation with gender and spirituality which I think is being castrated in some ways in in the west so yeah I'm fascinated by that stuff no I like the idea of two-spirited as well and I think of myself that way always so when I was saying earlier about the you know, oh, maybe that's why I did all that masculine stuff. And I think actually, no, you know, maybe I did it just because it's in me and it's still in me. Yeah. And I, I spent years and years and years in therapy talking about my gender, how, whether or not I felt more like a boy or a girl and where I fit in. And, you know, was I, is this what it means to be fluid? Or is this, you know, I'm not trans and I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm I'm not a man and I'm not a woman and I, I don't know where I fit in and I don't know where the line is and that, you know, all that kind of confusion around that. And these days I just think, well, you know, I just like this like I like having muscles and I like nail varnish as well and that's okay I can have both yes yes I I think that that's 
that's the way that everyone kind of should be. It's because it's funny, isn't it? Because like you always think like there's this this polarized thing between gender, but actually there's not. And it's like we have as many different versions of gender as there are people because it's your view that kind of sets those rules. So it's like where wherever you fit in that, it should be celebrated because it can be creative and positive. But it's funny. I find it fascinating though because the conversation I think has gone a little bit backwards in some regards because we're focusing more on those labels than we are the experiences and the experiences haven't changed but that we're like defining them again so yeah I like that I like that you said about the experiences because I tend to think of everything as the experience now and try and pull it away from the label so in couples work as well when people are really struggling with their sexuality or they've taken the word sexuality out and even remove sensuality often and just talk about the experience sure really bring it back to the very very basics you know what are you experiencing what is it like for you and that uh, you know so because our existence in the world is all about what we're experiencing yes yes so you mentioned about talking through um your jobs that you chose that were more masculine defined and I wanted to start talking about a little bit of that because you did a few things that were kind of out of the norm for what people consider a feminine job to do one of them was you became a plumber and a teaching of plumbing which I found amazing can you talk a little bit about that decision yeah so I um it was off the back of bodybuilding so I was coming out of my bodybuilding career and I, I knew I had to do something and I just felt uh, I didn't fit in anywhere and it just seemed like a really great thing to do very creative and dynamic and functional you know you could go into someone's house and fiddle with their pipes and create something and leave them with something functional so I, I, I just went to college and trained to be a plumber that's so amazing like that's such a different like it's like a completely seems completely random but then when you actually like explain it it does make a lot of sense like I think um when I started to do my website Agitprop I think people were very shocked because I was part of the management that was dealing with the very big YouTubers in America and I stopped doing all of the kind of mainstream YouTube stuff because I found it to be a little bit like soul destroying and there was a bit of an incident where I went through where I developed PTSD afterwards it was um a situation that I've spoken about like briefly but it's I went through a kind of like an assault in London and it changed the the way I wanted to move forward with my career. And I think like from 2016 going to 2018, I spent all of that time trying to heal from that in a way. And I didn't know anything about antidepressants or anti-anxiety or things like that. But what I did is I went and I cooked loads of things and I started to make things that people could enjoy and, and use and learn new skills and um, build in like little sculptures and things like that. And I understand what you're saying because it kind of, it when you make something that people can use, it can be restorative in some yeah. and I think that was the kind of like that was the mindset behind doing my my videos in this format instead of in like just being the beauty person because it was like this is this is so important that no one even gave me that tool set that you can go out there and help people in a in a physical way like that like making things and it's really healing so you did just mention as well that you went from bodybuilding to plumbing and I really wanted to talk to you about this because I think bodybuilding is amazingly disciplined and could you talk a little bit about your um, life and your start in bodybuilding? Do you know, I started um, when I was about nine. My brother had, remember those old bull workers? What's that? They're like these things. I've got the stretchy things that you used to stand on and pull up. 
Oh, okay. like, yeah, like a rubber thing that makes you your, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can squeeze them together and stuff like that. Well, my brother's had a, my elder brother's had a bulwark on some weights. And when I was about nine, I used to go in his bedroom and use his bulwark and do like shoulder presses and bicep curls and all that sort of stuff. So I had a sense then already really little that I, I wanted this physical strength and I wanted to feel myself in my body, you know, really feel myself in my body. Um, and then when I left home, I didn't. I just got absolutely wasted for, for about two years. Um, <laughs> and then, like you do, you know, like wild and reckless. Um, and my friend made me join the gym with her. So I I didn't go for six months. And then I went, oh God, I saw this woman doing pull-ups and she was amazing. She was so strong. And that was it. I thought, oh, my God, I'm doing that. And within six months, I was on stage. And on the amateur circuit, I won everything. I was never defeated. Um, so I'm quite proud of that. Um yeah, I just, it's massively disciplined, but I think the upbringing I had prepared me for that discipline because the upbringing I had already excluded me from lots of stuff and already taught me that oftentimes I had to sit and observe rather than participate. So being a bodybuilder and having to miss out on stuff was kind of like, well, I know how to do that. I know how to sit and observe and not participate because I've been trained for 16 years to do that. Wow. And you didn't just become like hugely successful winning, you became a judge as well after? Oh, yeah, I judged for about, God, I judged internationally for the International Physique Association. Um, and then I judged nationally for UKBFF and the PCA, so two other federations. But I, I, all in all, I was involved in bodybuilding for about um, 38 years. It's a long time, isn't it? Oh, my God. So either as a competitor, train, trainer, competitor or judge. So I did a really long stint with it. And I, and I, I don't really have anything to do with it now it's other than I do go to the gym and train and I sometimes wonder why I really pull myself out of that community um I mean it's changed over the years like all communities but it just it wasn't I guess it just wasn't serving a purpose for me anymore Mm. and also I started to recognize that my struggle with my ideas about my gender were less to do with uh, bodybuilding was clouding that somehow Okay. Me, my thinking, um, and I didn't need the, I didn't need the uh, the guys of the bodybuilder to have muscles and be strong. That that was actually me, and I could just have it without. Um, you know, I've got these biceps, or I train really hard because I'm a bodybuilder. Actually, I do it because that's who I am. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, did you? I don't know about the dynamics of the the bodybuilding as almost like a sport. But with other sports, I know that they do a massive focus on the men and the men often get like massive prizes and then the women do not get the same prizes. So is it the same within the bodybuilding? Of course it is. And, you know, I I mean, again, the industry's changed and they're trying to balance it out. But of course it is. And it always was. Actually, Joe, you know, when when I was started bodybuilding, I was living in London. I remember coming back from the States and I was maybe 22 or something and I was quite big I mean and I was quite masculinized as well in my face and everything I couldn't go out on my own I couldn't I couldn't I wouldn't go out on my own anywhere what was that for followed touched uh shouted at one time I was walking down Holloway Road and this guy in a double-decker bus you know how busy Holloway Road Mm. is in London or you you might do it's really busy Uh, it's a pollution center of Europe and I'm walking down the road in a little pair of shorts and, a, and a, just a T-shirt top thing, a, a strappy top, like any other person, only I was hugely muscular. And this bus driver pulled up next to me with a bus full of passengers and opened the doors and started shouting, beef, beef. My God. 
It was, I just remember thinking, oh my fucking God, what's going on? Sorry. Yeah, you can swear, you can swear, it's fine. (laughs) What is going on? And you know, there was kind of a, there's no way you can go, is it? Actually, that same day, I ran into Marks and Spencer's because I thought, oh God, this is awful. And I was just wandering around and I got followed. That's really, really crazy. In the end, I had to go home. Someone came up to me and wanted to, can I touch you? Men and women, excuse me, can I touch you, please? Just think, no, you can't touch me. This is insane. My God. So it kind of was like a, it was almost like an eye, an identity that you had to do, but doing so had like repercussions on your everyday existence. But Joe, it must happen to you as well in that when you go out, you must notice people looking at you. I mean, it doesn't matter. Sometimes if you're different, it doesn't matter how much you try and cover yourself up. People just sense you out. It was no. very strange when I was a kid, I think, because I, when I was very slim, I think that I was more undistinguishable in my gender and people, I, w- I wouldn't wear like flamboyant dress or anything. It would just be me as I was. And because I didn't look distinct, people would always try and force me to explain my existence to them. Like I was yeah. doing it for them. And, it, and then I think when I got to about 16, I started to be so outrageous. All my friends were like club kids and cyber goths. So I would dress in the most extraordinary things in the daytime. And people would act like I was invisible because it was like I was a peacock that was bigger yeah. than them. And then they couldn't do anything about it. So they just pretended I wasn't there. So it was yeah. <laughs> it was a strange thing. But it's it's interesting because I think like you have, if someone perceives you to be female and incredibly strong you have the double layer of being perceived as a female which we understand is in a hierarchy lower than men and women are already unsafe so i could imagine that it would have been an extraordinary position to be in no i didn't feel safe at all and i um most bodybuilding men would would tolerate and accept it or even like it but then there's a lot of um a a lot of actually I'm, i'm hesitant to say it because it's not entirely true, but maybe that the bodybuilding world was a pl- place where gay men could also be safe and be seen mm. because it was okay to admire other men's bodies. Yes. Uh, so perhaps those men didn't feel so threatened about by women with muscles because they weren't competing to get their attention. But it's interesting. It's always yeah. really interesting. And it's funny because I think with the female categories, there's almost like, from what I said, maybe I've got the wrong information, but there seemed to be more potential with the women's categories. But I didn't know what that was about. And <laughs> it was interesting. Well, you know, when when I started bodybuilding, it was really pure in that there was only there was only one category for women. Oh, and, OK. Yeah. And, and women were celebrated for being hugely muscular and lean and dense and hard, just the same as men. And then more recently, uh, then there was a bikini class, which was like perfect beach body, you know. And then more recently, other categories have started to come in between. And I think it's a bit confusing. Someone once explained it to me, one of the judges, as it was a progression. So most women who would start training would want to compete and they would compete in the bikini class because naturally they wouldn't have a lot of muscle. And so they wouldn't be able to compete in the big butt with the big women in the bodybuilding classes because they hadn't trained long enough and they didn't have the density of muscle. So they could start in the smaller categories and then they would work up to body fitness and then they would work up to the next category, the women's physique division or whatever, and then move up, eventually move into the big classes over the years. So I think that's why it's there to facilitate um, the different developmental stages that women go through before they build enough tissue to compete in the big because obviously it takes a long time. Sure, sure. But I don't entirely believe that. I think it's some of the smaller classes are really to uh, 
appease men's mainstream masculinity because mm. mainstream masculinity doesn't like uh, women with square jaws and big muscles. I say, I say. Um, do you think that exercise and training um, is a way to help your like self care? And because I know a lot of people say that training and that discipline and that endorphin release is really, really positive for people, whether yeah. you're going through everyday life or, or you're in a particularly bad case of your mental health. Um, do you think that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think training saved me. I think I probably would have ended up some kind of like crazy alcoholic drug addict on the street corner somewhere if I hadn't found bodybuilding. Um, and for me, it was about release of anger and mm. frustration because I was incredibly angry as a young um, young child or young teenager, should I say, young adult even. Um, yeah, I was just very, very angry and I needed to release that somewhere. I needed to find, go somewhere and just uh, uh, release that aggression. And the gym was a great place for me to do that. So I often uh, felt ragefully angry when I was training and thought about things that really upset and hurt me and was able to release some of that stuff in the gym. Mm-hmm. So your mum... remember earlier when I said so... all addiction is about managing difficult feelings? Yes. So for, fortunately for me, I learned a way to manage those difficult feelings. Whereas someone else might not do, and they might learn to manage their difficult feelings by getting drunk or, or taking drugs. Sure, sure. And that's super important for people as well. Do you think that people, because we're kind of like taught from school and what you were saying earlier about introducing this kind of combo to younger people, when you're kind of like giving things in our current kind of like school systems, you almost are like competitive in the area where it comes to sport instead of it like are using it as a tool for yourself. And do you think that competition is useful or do you think that it can be a negative? I put my face in because I can get, I personally can be hugely competitive, hugely, like massively, but not necessarily with other people, with myself. So, you know, that kind of, and I expect you're very similar, Joe, in that, you know, someone, if you decide to do a task, you completely become obsessed with yes. it and it takes up everything and you absolutely have to do it and get it right and do it to a particular level. And that that's competition, but it's not necessarily competition against another person. It's about, you know, something in you that says, I really want to do this and I want to do it particularly well. Mm. But I think that's good. And I think channeling that in kids is good. Um, pitting them against one another I don't think is so good Um, because you know if you're either better than someone or someone's better than you then you can't be equal and if you can't be equal you can't make connections Mm. making healthy connections with other people is much much more important um, than being better than them or them being better than you do you see what I mean if if they're better than you and or you're better than them then you can't connect you need to be equal to connect there needs to be mutuality so mutual respect, mutual admiration, mutual trust. So I think that making connections is way more better, way more useful than mm. being competitive against other people. So I first discovered your work when I was watching the BBC show Sex on the Couch. Yeah. And I was so like enamoured because I, I'm interested in, fa- in therapy and I think that the convo about all of this stuff should be way more accessible to people because you just, if you're going through a difficult period and you are trying to control your negative emotions, you don't know what to do. And I was really intrigued about the um, show because it was more so a focus on counselling couples and exploring how their issues have pertained to their sex life and I wondered if you could talk about um your work as a psychotherapist because that's what you do and that's what you're fantastic at so if you could talk about how that show came to be and what what you discovered on it 
Well, I, to be honest, the show, it, the, the uh, inception of it, I had nothing to do with in that somebody had an idea and then approached me and said, would you like to be on this show? And my initial response was no, um, because my I felt it could be hugely detrimental to my work. Um, but eventually I said yes, and I'm really glad I did it. Um, the thing with the thing that bothered me about it, it wasn't originally going to be called Sex on the Couch. It was going to be called Couples on the Couch. And for some reason, they changed the name. And that, it just felt a little bit gratuitous, but the show wasn't. I mean, I think it was informative. Um, we say sex and it's so titillating, isn't it? You know, sex and let's talk about sex. But actually, the, the real problem isn't the sex. The sex is a symptom. The real problem is underneath that. And I hope that came across in the programme that... Um, if you've got a problem in your sex life, you've got a problem in your relationship. I almost think that you know people shouldn't be allowed to have sex until unless they can talk about it. <laughs> so if you can't if you can't talk to your partner about sex, then you shouldn't be having sex with them. Mm. Go ahead. Um, I think that that's super interesting because I was the show kind of it encompassed so many different types of relationship. There was a lady that was, um, she'd gone through an incident where she was physically impaired and there was same-sex couples. And it was like people assume that everyone's sex life is very different depending on what you have and what you are. But actually when you were discussing all the things, it was the same things were cropping up all the time and it was that communication thing. So could you go a little bit further into that and, and talk about how people how it manifests in people if they're not communicating. Yeah, sure. So that if you haven't got the fundamentals of your relationship in place, it's a bit like building a house. If your foundations aren't strong, the house will wobble and it'll fall down. And that's what happens with relationships all the time. You know, I have people, it's interesting actually how people can sustain difficulty for really extended periods of time. And um, so I have people who come into therapy and they've been together 20 years, 20, 20 years, one of them's had an affair. And up until that point, they've never spoken about sex. Oh my God. And it's been actually going wrong for years. You know, sometimes even before they got married, they weren't having sex or the sex was problematic in some way, but they never talked about it. They just endured it. They just, you know, it was okay. And then they bought a house together. So they had a financial commitment. Then they had children or not. You know, so they just endure it. So humans' capacity to endure difficulty is immense. It amazes me all the time. I just look at people and think, wow, you spent 20 years with that difficulty and you never did anything about it. Is it, is, is it shame driven that, that people are doing that or is it because people ha are like putting it to the back of their head to focus on other things or is, what's the, what do you think the common trend there is? Interesting, I don't know. Maybe it's, there is something about shame in that in the, or maybe it's also facility in that we don't have the facility to talk about sex mm. or mental health. You know, as you were saying earlier, what can we do to help people with their mental health and it's the same as what we can do about sex I suppose or sexual function is that we can build the facility for people to talk the framework and make it normal bring it out into the open say all those words that people are afraid to say mm. so look this is how you say it and then they can also say it um, and normalize it so that people aren't don't feel that they're, they're the only one you know they're the only couple or the only person that's got that difficulty but ultimately um, I've just written a book I don't yes. know if I'm allowed to say that. I've just written a book and it's going to be released by Audible in June, I think. And it will be called 12 Steps to Sexual Love. And the 12 steps are things like commitment, communication, trust, the balance between autonomy and interdependence. Um, gosh, I've forgotten the rest. <laughs> no, um, 
all these things are really, really important. Mental health, so understanding the impact of um, medication on mental health and sexual function, um, understanding something about kink and BDSM and diverse sexual diversity, understanding something about uh, gender and gender neutrality or, or gender difference. All of it's really, really important. And we need to know something about all of that stuff so that we can build healthy relationships with other people that are really meaningful, that are really addressing our needs. Mm. I'm so excited to listen or to read to that. I can't wait for it to come out. When When is it going to be released? Hopefully June. I'm hoping the book will come out. Um, I'm just waiting for a final date from Audible. But um, it's looking like it's going to be June. Fantastic. It's so exciting. It is exciting. How did you become a, a psychotherapist to begin with? What was your kind of progression into that into this role? Um, so I was, a, I was lecturing and I was just pretty good at working with NEETS. Um, so NEETS is a term for not engaged in education and training. So and most of the NEETS I worked with were boys because I was working at a construction college. So um, I had a little program that was running for, for NEETS. Um, 14 year old boys who were coming into college that none of them were going to school. They were all hugely disaffected. And I got sent a specialist uh, teaching assistant to work with that, that client group. And uh, she was amazing. And she was a second year transactional analysis psychotherapy student. And uh, she said to me that I should look into it because she thought that I taught in a very TA style. I didn't know what that was at the time. (laughs) So I did look into it. And I remember going to the 101, which is just a weekend course. Oh my God, Joe! I just cried. It was so intense. It was as if someone had just, you know, those moments, those really key moments in your life when you everything just falls into place and yes. there's so much clarity. Everything about that course, the language, everything about it was just completely life-changing for me. So I started training part-time as soon as I could and I'd cried for five years, I cried throughout all the training. I just, it was so, um, I don't know how anyone can do that training and not be immensely changed as a human being. Wow, so, so it sounded like a release then. Oh, it was phenomenal for me. And, you know, I, I get it that other people might be able to do that training and not be impacted in the same way. Maybe their starting point is different. I, I had already had so much baggage, you know, I had so much stuff going on in my mental health. I hadn't even realised I struggled with my mental health immensely over the years and I hadn't even really realised because I hadn't acknowledged it fully to myself. It was too shaming, I suppose. Mm. You know, it's a shaming thing, isn't it, to say, I struggle with my mental health, I mean. Mm. No one wants to say that, especially when you're a therapist, because you're supposed to be, you know, strong and your life's supposed to be perfect. And of course, no one's life is perfect and we can't all be strong all the time. Um, and I refuse to be, I refuse to let people put that label on me because it's just, it's not okay to do that to me. Mm. Mm. It's um, fabulous that, that you've been able to do this and through your work and your personal release, it's been a helping thing for other people and the mm-hmm. clients you work with. So people... Um, are able to reach you as a psychotherapist and you work predominantly in the Manchester area and and surrounding yeah. there. So if people were to find you, how best would that would that happen? Oh, in fact, they can just look me up through the Manchester Institute for Psychotherapy. I have a residency there. So in Chawton, that's probably the easiest way to contact me. Um, or just if you Google so yeah. it's like more from the counselling directory's website. So it's a, it's a big national directory mm-hmm. for qualified therapists and counsellors. Perfect. Um, you, I saw that you specialise in several sexual relation 
areas, whether it be sexual offences. Um, there is a foundation called Stop SO. Is that correct? That you're so Stop Sexual Offenders. Yeah, sure. It's a great organisation, and there's a subject that no one wants to talk about, Jen. Mm. The other one that I noticed that you also um, registered with is the LGBT Foundation. So yeah. if people were specifically looking for someone that was um, focused in these areas, they could definitely um, check out your work. Do you think that there is a difference um, between going to a therapist and you've identified in yourself that you want to move through a situation or, you, or you're stuck and you want to connect with someone, but is there going to be a major difference with people that are registered with LGBT Foundation, for example, and not? Do you think that choosing the right therapist is, you have to be careful with that? How would you recommend? Um, yeah, I think, you know, someone who is ordinarily, I would say, no, a therapist should be able to work with anybody because it's about understanding the person's world. Uh, but actually, I think it does make a difference in the the. My supervisor once told me that the therapy only goes as deep as the therapist's capacity, and mm. I totally get that. So if the therapist can't tolerate or have dialogue around certain things, the therapy won't go there. Not because the therapist is bad, but just because it's not within their capacity. Um, I think it's important to go to therapy to find someone who is tolerant and accepting of your difference, if you have a difference, mm. uh, and they can stay with you in that dialogue that just feels important and certainly if I was choosing a therapist for myself I'd want to find somebody who really um, could tolerate and accept the things that I wanted to talk about who was okay with it. Am I able to ask a little bit about therapy because I am I, I'm just I'm learning and obviously from the television show it was quite insightful because you saw how people can slowly start to open out but you you when you're in therapist you sometimes set the couples that were going to discuss their um individual cases that like some homework and things to do at home if if someone has identified that they want to go to therapy what would they expect from a therapy session not not all therapists give homework and not all therapists are um so interactive so and there's different types of therapy i suppose Transaction analysis has got a, it's got a massive framework. It's got a really good structure, a personality structure and treatment structure, but not all therapies have. So um, if someone was coming to therapy to meet with me, that's all I can talk about, is they can expect me to um, really hear them and reflect back to them what it is that they're telling me so that they can hear it themselves. And also for me to challenge them on their thinking at times. Um, and... The, in terms of homework, I do offer homework, not for everybody, but I offer psycho psychoeducation. So I might offer some reading. Um, I might tell them that ask them to do things like notice, notice every time they say or do something and make a note of it. I might ask them to interrupt their own thinking and with a CBT sort of a way. Um, and I might ask them to experiment with different uh, behaviours. Is CBT cognitive behavioural therapy? Yeah, I'm not a massive fan of CBT on its own, but I think if you use it as part of other structures, other therapies, it's really useful. What um, it what for, for me that doesn't really know much about the difference of the two. Mm -hmm. Um, how is is cognitive behavioural therapy something that that's more active? Like, what what would the differences yeah. be? Well, it is, I suppose. It's, the CBT is a cogn It's about your cognition. It's about mental process. So. A, a chap called Paul Wares developed a theory called um, 
the three uh, contact doors, so three doors for therapy. So when someone walks into my therapy room, I'm observing them and I'm thinking, are they approaching the world through their thinking, their feeling, or their behaviours? And for people who approach the world through their thinking, so they're very cognitive, CBT is great for them because they live in their head already, so they can they can process in their head. But what it doesn't do is it it doesn't really offer them the full therapeutic cure that they need because it doesn't allow them necessarily to access their feelings. So it, if someone comes to therapy and they're very cognitive, I will approach them through their cognition and through the cognition where I'm aiming is their feelings. So I'm aiming for the feeling door. Once that person gets in, really gets in touch with their feelings and learns to feel their feelings as opposed to think their feelings, their behaviours will change. Hmm. And so again, if someone's very histrionic and they come to therapy and they're crying and it's all about their emotions, I will approach them through their emotions. So I will be kind and gentle and sensitive and give them a blanket and a cup of tea and uh, really engage in their feelings. And once they, I and them together connecting their feelings, they can then go to their thinking and once they get in touch with their thinking, their behaviours will change. Is So if you've identified like that there are thought and then there are feelings and then there are behaviours, are people, so are there other people as well as the two examples that you gave that are like behavioural driven, like they're like habitual? Yeah, it's less common to be fair, but absolutely, um, you know, some people are just doing all the time, especially if they're responding to trauma and it's old trauma. So they're in a doing state, you know, when they're going, get tough, the tough, get going. That yes. kind of, that they're, so they're always doing, 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 but they're not um, taking the time to think or feel the impact of what they're doing. So how can I give you an example? So I can be quite behaviour focused. So when I wrote this book, I wrote it over 15 weeks and 15 weeks, I either sat in the therapy chair or sat at my computer. So I was doing, 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 doing. And during that time, I forgot to notice my body and my emotions. So at the end of the 15 weeks, I realised, oh, my God, I'm absolutely knackered. You know, my back's knackered, my knees are knackered, my shoulders are knackered. And that, then I had to go to the physio. And um, my learning from was, that was that, oh, you know, sometimes I need to stay connected with my body and with my feelings. Because when I really get into doing, I can forget about those things. Like going on autopilot. Sorry? Sort yeah, of a... yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and you might, you know, I don't really know an awful lot about you, Joe, but you, I know that you're really driven and you yes. really immerse yourself into projects. So you might do the same. There might be times when you forget that you have a body also and that it needs to attending to. Without question, I'm I'm always like that. I try and focus on the thing I had and then I'm, I'm like up at like four in the morning before I even realise that it's like night time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I do like being like that sometimes, but I, it is irresponsible, really, because you need to take care of, of yourself for first and foremost. But I'm I'm always intrigued about trauma because I think that some people have trauma that it kind of... Like, I think a lot of the things with the Me Too movement that's come out in the last couple of years is that it started a conversation about sexual trauma. And, and there are lots of examples where older generational women have gone through something horrifying when they were very young, maybe 60 years ago or something. And they have shown almost no response in an obvious way that something like that happened to them. And it's been something that they've kept shamefully to themselves. And they, I saw an example where, um, someone's auntie she was an older lady she was uh, she's a feminist woman she, there was a lecture she was giving about her auntie and she said that her auntie had said that that she had been basically sexually assaulted when she was much younger but no one spoke about it back in the day and 
I think that it's it's really kind of scary if you think about that must have been so much more common than people even knew. And it, it manifested almost in a silence with that example. How um, do you see trauma manifesting in people? So I'm going to answer your question, Jeb, but I'm going to give you just a little bit, piece of information as well, which horrifies me, horrifies me. But apparently there's been some research done around this, which is that um, if you show a man and a woman um, a video of someone being raped or, or some horrific sexual act going on, um, unless the man's disturbed, he won't be aroused at all. Nothing will happen down there because it's not arousing. It's not nice. A woman will, will get wet. And mm. that's not because she's aroused. It's because over the centuries, women's bodies have adapted to assault. So when they see a sexual act that's horrific and violent and not, they don't want to engage in, they will probably get wet to, so that they won't, because there's the impending threat that they will be attacked and that they self-lubricate to protect their bodies. That is crazy, but what... I've never heard that fact before, but I guess, like... I can't think of the research, the name of the people who did the research off the top of my head, but it is actual real research that's happened. And um, so in the olden days, people used to say, you know, stand, the, the, the offender would go to court and say, but she was well-lubricated, judge, so she must have wanted it. And it's mm. actually, no, actually, she was well-lubricated because her body has evolved and it's prepared itself for attack. Mm. There's so much around um, rape laws especially in this country that i think dismiss the, the, the if you're female i think it's harder to identify things than it is if you're a male body person that's been raped but you're a piece of evidence instead of a victim of a crime in a lot of cases and to bring um justice you have to go through civil routes and there's it's I think that some of the stuff that needs to happen to change those laws is to have an open dialogue about some of this stuff. Like, people just don't even want to admit things that go on with their bodies. Um, yeah. Do you think that there are ways that we can open up this conversation to get to the point where yeah. we can be, I guess, less shameful, which we've spoken about a couple of times today, but how do we address shame and move through it? Is there a process that we can adapt in our lives or, or we can start talking about? Well, I think if we make things common knowledge, it's harder to hide it and be shameful about it. Mm. So let's start making, let's talk lots and lots and lots and make lots of things just common knowledge and put the words out there so that it become very familiar and every day and anybody and everybody can access that language. I think that's a way to help in terms of preventing future generations from being shameful or feeling shameful about stuff that's happened to them. Um, but if we haven't got the language and we keep it hidden away and we tell our children stupid things like don't touch your willy, it'll drop off or don't play with your gentles because they're dirty. I mean, you know, if we continue that narrative with our children, we continue to make them feel that it, there's something shameful about their sexuality. And then also, this is why people stay in relationships 20 years and never talk about sex because they were so socialised as children not to talk about sex, not to want to... You know, men are socialised to, traditional men are socialised to access love through sex. So, you know, if you've got feelings, then you must be wanting to have sex. And women are socialised to access their feelings through love, not sex. So if you're feeling horny, you want to have sex. You don't really, you really want to cuddle and you want to be loved, you know. Mm. And it's just stupid. How are the two people, two genders ever supposed to meet in sexuality if they're both so confused about it? Um, so, you know, bringing in terms of rape and assault, really understanding what trauma looks like and that, uh, and understanding something about the, the freeze thing as well, because just because a woman's lying there or a man's frozen doesn't mean he's willingly saying, yes, let's have sex. They might be in a state of fear mm. and, you know, they might be part of the, 
a flight to flight fight response. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I'm I'm just intrigued, but I don't know how like I don't know how to phrase it really. Like, if if someone is going through um, a process of an assault and they've been like not, I wouldn't say like a participant because I don't want to victim blame, but is how do we heal from situations um, if we position the person that has perpetrated what the 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 person that's caused the sexual assault if it's not a violent crime for example if it's something that was like a clumsy sexual experience that wasn't consensual but it wasn't forced if you know what i mean there's that kind of gray area in yeah. between how do we identify um and heal if in that kind of space because obviously there's been clumsy times i'm sure in everyone's sexuality where they don't where it's been a, there's something's not gone to plan or it's not gone the, how is that different from rape? And is there a, a space that's, is there kind of a room yeah. to be that kind of clumsy? Or is it, do we have to yeah. be a little bit more careful about things like that? Joe, so that's a really big question because so many people, because we haven't got the, the backbone or the narrative, you know, because people don't know how to really, we talk about consent, but no one really knows how to do it. You know, young people, mm. are they, do they really know how to say to someone, hey, are you sure you want to have this sexual encounter right now? I mean, it is that simple, isn't it? To just ask somebody, um, but because there's all this kind of oh, it, it, shadiness or, or shade over what it means to be sexual, you know, people aren't equipped to ask those questions or have that dialogue. They don't. Mm. So if someone is, uh, I think the sort of clumsy sexual encounter you're talking about is where the woman freezes, the girl freezes, and the guy thinks that's consent because he hasn't actually asked and then attempts or does actually have some kind of sexual encounter with this person who really didn't want it and wasn't totally okay in the in the process and i've had people come to therapy and and that's happened to them mm. um but it's damaging for both parties it's damaging for the the guy if you like as well in that he's done something to another human being who didn't really want it and they're not entirely sure whether or not they did or didn't want it and they're left with that doubt about whether or not they're okay as a person yeah so it's definitely on both sides so there's there's a way to stop it from happening, which we'll talk about that later. But in terms of if if you've had one of those encounters and processing process it, either go to therapy or go to EMDR if it was more significant and process it, talk about it, hash it out, work out what it means to you, work out what it means to the other person, work out what your part in it was, if there was any part in it. And I'm not victim blaming, I'm not victim blaming at all. Um, when I said what was your part in it, if you were the victim, your part in it might have been that you froze and that and that you might froze again or that you got yourself to that situation, you got yourself, uh, you didn't stop at any point and say, actually, this is too far now. You didn't notice. It sounds so victim-blaming. I don't no, I know. It, it's hard to talk about, isn't it? Because you, you want to, the ultimate goal is to help someone heal, but you can't heal unless you identify what the factors of the situation were. And it's not saying like you wore a miniskirt, therefore you're inviting the world to attack you. But it's like everyone has gone through a situation where it's been like not amazingly, probably most people are not having healthy sex, which I'm sure you have identified and why your book would be so important for people to read. But that shame, there's like a connection between talking about mental health and also talking about sexual health. Is there, there's obviously some connection between the two that people kind of separate, but it's probably the same thing. Uh, between sexual health and mental health, do you mean? Yes, Sorry. and the the mind. Yeah, of course. So, you know, 
uh, so really something that's quite common just off the top of my head is if you've got an OCD process and lots of people have OCD processes I'm not talking about a disorder I'm talking about process so we all have preferred ways of processing information um, so if you've got an OCD process which means that you overthink uh, uh, often or a lot that might get in the way of your capacity to have an orgasm because if you're in bed with somebody and you're um, thinking about whether or not they're having a good time or whether or not you're actually having a good time or whether or not uh, you look okay or, you know, you've got an assignment to finish or, you know, you're thinking about other stuff and obsessing about other stuff, then it's going to be really hard to be in the moment, relax and orgasm. Well, that's interesting because I, my, my whole family are really OCD. <laughs> to to yeah. give their details out there to the world, I'm sure they won't mind because they say it themselves. But I, I'm always fascinated by OCD because I can be perfectionist with things that I want to do. And in, in the same way we were discussing when you were writing your book and you were just focusing on the task at hand and getting it yeah. done. What is o, OCD and how how is that different from other things we've spoken about? Well, OCD stands for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. But I'm not suggesting when I use it, I'm thinking more of a an, an adaptation in that we all have preferred ways of sorting information. But if your preferred way of so information is coming into us all the time from the outside world, and then our brain, which is a processor, sorts that information out. And some people um, choose OCD or a very obsessive way of sorting that information out. Um, OCD itself, um, the O stands for obsessions. So obsessive thinking, ruminating, circular thoughts, um, and the um, C stands for uh, compulsions, so how you might act out those obsessive thoughts, the so things you absolutely have to do, you, a compulsive thing like turning on off light bulbs, counting to 10, uh, whatever it is, that releases attention. So it's kind of like you get bubbles of really intense thought that have to then be released in some way. So if someone was to identify that in themselves and they wanted to seek out therapy to do something would that be in a case of identifying that it's a mind thing or would it be an emotion thing that causes the mind thing what is it different case by case so ocd has got a number of uh, possible routes so if i go with the real simplest things mm. so there's two possible routes that can lead to ocd um and it's a very cognitive process so it's, it's, if someone comes to therapy and they're presenting with ocd then it when I talked about three doors, contact doors, it's the um, cognitive door that you need to address because it's through their thinking. Um, so the two pathways to OCD, the most basic pathways, one is to when you grew up in an environment that was unpredictable and chaotic, and it might not be materially unpredictable, but it might be emotionally unpredictable in that one minute mum might be really, really angry and constantly shouting at you about, I don't know, leaving your shoes in the hallway, and then the next day saying, oh, it's fine, leave your shoes wherever you want. And that's just really confusing and you know unpredictable um so that or, or it might actually be violent aggressive shouting and other such things you know when we think of unpredictable more, more traditionally unpredictable mm. um or a, a massively over controlled environment where you're not allowed to express your baseline instincts so where everything is super clean and tidy and organized and structured and your sandwiches are always ready on time for school your shoes are always cleaned uh, no one ever shouts, no one ever raises their voices um, and you're not allowed to go out and get dirty because you have to be a good girl or a good boy and stay clean. You're not allowed to uh, touch genitals, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as a child because that's dirty and bad. You're not allowed to be really angry or crazy or have a tantrum, tantrum you know, everything has to be controlled. So that's another pathway to the OCD process in that the child um, 
fears and predictability and a difference or change. That's so insightful and I think that's it's really interesting like because I, I to give some insight my, my family are very like the cleaning obsession <laughs> so I've been growing up well I think it kind of worked in a sort of like similar thing to Grace Jones where Grace Jones was from this like religious household and she exploded like an abscess of creativity when she got older because that's certainly me and I'm not I'm a little bit less OCD but if if I haven't got like right the good lighting and I can't control the way I present myself if I've got an idea in my head to to carry that thing out I will be so grumpy <laughs> so stressy so I, it's it's probably a, one of these um processes that I need to work through but <laughs> but Joe I would say when you said grumpy and stressy and I thought I wonder what if those emotions are cover emotions and I wonder what be the core emotion underneath that Oh, it would be a lack of not being able to um, defend myself. Because if I do a really, really good version of my face, I can go under the radar in some ways. And then if I'm not doing the right thing, if I've not covered my beard, if I'm presenting as female, if I'm not... I open myself up to being vulnerable to people. And I, I it's like a fear thing, I think. Because if I get it right, I'm fine. And I'm often... I get things, good things happen from it. But if it's not right, I'm like, oh my God, that I associate that something bad will happen to me, I think. And when you said fear there, that was my fantasy. My fantasy was that, okay, there's a cover feelings and I wonder what the real authentic feeling is underneath. And I thought it was fear. I thought, oh, you may, maybe Joe's fearful of what will happen if he doesn't get it. His fear of attack. Yeah. It's and it's. I think like with me, but when I wanted to um, talk to you, I, I I wanted to share a little bit about my story, not to focus anything on me, but just because people. I don't see people talk about things like that, and I think maybe if I could talk about it, people would be able to talk about it too. So yeah, clearly, yeah, because then you become a role model. You're saying you're demonstrating. You're saying this is how we do it. Yeah, and you know what, much of what you've been asking is how do we uh, open up these? What do we do to get make the world a better place or a safer place? And we demonstrate, we talk about it. We say, hey, you know what? This is what mental health looks like. This is what it feels like. This is what it does for me. So that we're bringing it out of the dark. We're, we're creating a framework so people can say, hey, I feel that too. I didn't know other people felt that. You mean it's okay for me to talk about it? Yes. <laughs> and there's so much release. There's so much release in saying out loud. Me too. Yeah, yeah. Um, your mum is is your, um, your son. Is he... Because you've had all of this life experience and you've been from a traditional family and you're also a psychotherapist. So how is it raising a son with all this kind of information that you know? Is is there a stark difference from your childhood, I imagine? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'm thinking of writing a book about (laughs) raising boys, even though I'm not a boy. Uh, Although, you know, I would argue that I, uh, I know what it means to be... Uh, have some I was going to say be a boy and I thought no I don't know what it means to be a boy but I know what it means to be in touch with my masculine self mm. um yeah it, it, of course I think my son's great he's brilliant he's really quirky he's naughty at school which I think is healthy in a way and that <laughs> you know he's not just going to sit and take it he's clever and he's funny he up until three weeks ago he danced ballet for five years and he just quit which I'm really upset about oh but yeah he's decided he really wants to be hugely muscular now which is a bit concerning but you know it's his life and he can do he can do that if he wants um so I remember talking to my son about cocaine because we have I have lots of books around the house on all sorts of subjects and I don't hide them away they're accessible I was talking to you about cocaine he, he brought it up for some reason and I was saying yeah you know it really affects your 
Um, and I was trying to use softer language and I was trying to term that it affects your erectile capacity. Mm. He said, mum, do you mean it causes erectile dysfunction? <laughs> I just thought that is brilliant. 13 years old and he knows those words and he knows what it means. And he's able to just say to me, I know what it means, you know, mum. He's able to say it to me, I didn't have to dress it up or try and find other words. But he just, he'd read it in some of the books I'd read find <laughs> So, yeah, he knows lots about sex and sexuality and sexual function. Um, and he is able to talk about it. And, you know, like we were, we were talking before about um, how the younger generation is so different in their outlook. He was only about 12 at the time and we were driving along and I said something like, you know, when you grow up and get a get a wife, I said something like that. And he said, or a husband. Oh, <laughs> like, oh yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And then he told me off about, you know, not not being tolerant and um, <laughs> or being too narrow, my thinking. And I remember thinking, bloody hell, yeah, right. No, absolutely. So, and that's not to say that, I'm not suggesting that he himself wants a husband or a wife or it either, but more that in his thinking, it just wasn't okay to be that narrow. How, how inspiring and amazing is that? Yeah, he said some lovely things. I'm going to be a gushy parent for a while. I remember once when he was about seven and he said to his friend, uh, you don't have to scream and shout. You can just say I'm really cross right now. And I just, it was one of those moments, I'll never forget it, when I just felt like the angels sang and the heavens opened. <laughs> because I thought, oh, I've taught this boy well, you know, he really gets it, he really gets it. He can just say it. He doesn't have to scream and shout it and have a temper tantrum. He can just say, don't do that, that's not okay. Mm. Do you um, have anything about you as yourself that you think, oh, I'd like to do therapy? Like, have you been to therapy? I've been in therapy over 10 years and I won't stop. So you, it's like part of your practice of a menti, men, um, a menti, a healthy mental state. Yes, and I absolutely really think it is appalling when therapists or counsellors suggest that they're 100% okay and fits in their life and that they don't need therapy themselves. It's just, it's so shaming for the people who seek therapy. We all need therapy. If the one, if we could do one thing, is give everybody in the world therapy. Everybody needs therapy. Everybody has, is broken in some ways. Everyone is struggling in some ways with something, and that's just totally okay. Mm. And I, I, for one, always advocate that. Um, I, in fact, I would not. If I was seeking a therapist, one of my questions would be, "Are you in therapy?" Because I would not see a practitioner who was not in therapy themselves. I guess that makes a lot of sense as well because if you've got to kind of like dissect other people's trauma and, and as you said earlier when you were um, a residential social worker you take on a little bit of what's going on in your convo so if you weren't expressing that to someone else it's kind of like a build-up that's equally as unhealthy mm -hmm. so that's a, that's a really useful advice for someone looking for therapy um yes. is there anything that you would say like any other things you would say when people were looking to try a therapist like with um a lot of charities i have spoken to mind out which is an lgbt version of mind and they offer a therapist service as a charity and it's very cheap compared to a lot of um therapists and i was really intrigued by that because a lot of the people who go to therapy you you kind of have to have some sort of relationship with the experience that, that the therapist does as well if you see what i'm saying so mm -hmm. if would you if you were looking for a therapist would you ha specifically look for someone that is a specialist in an area is it as simple as that uh maybe maybe I'm, I'm a bit reluctant to say yes definitely because um 
because it's it, it's broader, isn't it? Our, mm. our understanding and experience of ourselves is broader than just our sexuality or just our understanding of our gender. Although if that's all you want to look at, although I don't know if it's possible to just look at your gender because it inevitably it's informed by everything else. Mm. But yeah, I think if someone's got a specialism in something, what they're telling you is they've thought a lot about it and they've gathered a lot of information about it and they're really available to speak about it and be challenged. Challenge, uh, the therapist is often challenged also. My thinking's often challenged. Sometimes I hear myself say things that are redundant and out of date and think, oh, you know, I don't know why I said that and then I have to take that away to my own therapy and, and, and find that um, thing within myself and pull it out. So if someone's saying they're a specialist in a particular area or they have a special interest, then they've spent a lot of time um, ex- exploring their own internal self about that subject or that matter. So they're less likely to just... Um, say outdated or believe outdated things um, that are unprocessed. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So if, if we haven't thought much about a subject and someone asks a question, we go to our uh, programming, we go to our, our, our archaic programming, internal programming, and we just go to whatever's there and say, oh, well, I was taught a long time ago, this, this and this, and I'm, I'm just going to bring that to the forefront without thinking about it. Although we might not consciously do that, that's exactly what we do. We go back to our outdated, archaic thinking or learning about that particular subject and, and say that even if we don't believe it now because we haven't checked it. It's only when we say it out loud that we go, oh, wow, actually, I said that, but maybe I don't really believe it. Whereas if someone's a specialist in an the area, they've spent a lot of time thinking about it, so they will have checked and reprogrammed themselves in some ways. Um, Perfect. That that would be great for people who want to go into this area, maybe as a way of self-care and, and just... I'm always trying to think about, like, how I think... So, like, maybe someone else would think the same, because it was just such a confusing round for me to look into when I first started to consider therapy, because I thought, like, what happens if I, if the therapist doesn't know like and I'm I'm always like I'm one of these people I think because when I was at school I was doing things much younger than I should have been doing at school and then when I got to a teacher that I didn't consider to be a great teacher I kind of felt like oh I can't learn from you and I'm always like aware that I'm one of those mental people that will probably go in and be like mm, I don't think that's quite right but like I was so connected with you particularly when I was watching um Sex on the Couch because you see things in such an insightful way that it makes you notice the obvious in a way. And I think some of this is kind of about that. It's like noticing what's what's there and you're not looking at. So your therapist is a mirror. Your therapist is a reflective tool. They're going to reflect back to you. And in many ways, your therapist needs to stay in a place of not knowing. Because if your therapist has worked it out, say I work out, oh, this is what it is exactly, uh, too quickly, it doesn't give you enough room to to really bring all of it or unpick it and process it. Mm-hmm. But it's the therapist's job to keep reflecting back and to say what they've heard. So to say, oh, it sounds to me like, you know, I'm, what I'm hearing is, and that's a reflection so the client can then hear and see themselves and say, mm, you know, yeah, actually, that is what I think, or no, actually isn't, or, or make some sense of themselves, you know, um, in some way. Yes. Uh, you know, Joseph, if, if people out there are looking for a therapist, Go and meet one. Go, go and, you know, look on the, I think the counselling directory or the UKCP website. There's lots of different websites out there. Go, go and uh, look for one. Find one that you like the picture of and the name of and whatever it is they've written. And then go and meet them. Go and sit with them for 20 minutes. And um, most therapists will offer a free introductory meeting just to see if you can make build an alliance. The most important bit of any therapeutic process is the alliance. Okay is the connection between you and the therapist. 
that that is golden and if you can't make a connection with your therapist then good therapy isn't going to happen um i i would go as far as to say that i have feelings of i would actually say actual feelings of love for the majority of the people i work with mm. some people are really really hard to love they're really hard to love and my job as a therapist in some ways is to kind of find that tiny bit of them the bit of them that is lovable and then love them Mm, that's lovely that's lovely and I think sorry go ahead no it's why people come to therapy they might not realize it but they come to therapy to make that connection and to be loved and to be held and that doesn't mean I go oh you're beautiful and you're wonderful and I never challenge them or I don't do any good work it means that one of the things that's happening so different things are happening on different levels so one of the things that are happening is that I'm reaching out and I'm finding that bit of them that could be loved and I'm grabbing hold of it and I'm loving them that's amazing. Um, it, so your new book is coming out, it's 12 Steps to Sexual Love. And yes. you've also been on the cover of Health and Beauty magazine looking gorgeous. I know, that's out at the moment, which is amazing. Yeah, it's it's so crazy, isn't it? It's so crazy. How do you see things going forwards? Are you going to be looking into doing more TV um, or more focuses on media stuff? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. I never, I'm never. i surprised to hear myself say that because it's not anything I've ever pursued. And, in, you know, in many ways, being a therapist, you're behind the scenes. You know, you don't, no one invites you around for dinner, you know, if you're their therapist and you wouldn't go even if they did. But, um, <laughs> but you're, you're hidden. Therapists are hidden. We're in the background. So it's quite a strange thing to find myself uh, choose a profession where I know I'm going to be hidden much of the time to all of a sudden find myself out there on, on the public arena. But I like it. I do like it. Um, I'm going slowly, Joe. You know, you talked about um, being seen and when you do become a, a, a media figure and look at what happened to Caroline Flack you know, mm. and, and other people, we become public property and people think they have the right to say things to you that they wouldn't say to other people yeah. or to you in ways that they wouldn't treat other people. Um, so I'm mindful of that. So far, it's been okay. Um when I was a bodybuilder, it wasn't okay. People would approach me and tell me things like I was going to die soon or I was a sinner and I was going to hell. And, or you know, just random strangers would approach me in the street and say really, really awful things or send me horrible messages yeah. on, on the internet, really, really awful stuff. None of that's happened this time around. So that's nice. But I'm mindful about being seduced by the world of media and my value and my sense of self Um being determined by what other people think or feel about me. It's the, hard. The image of me, because it's not real, is it? It's just an image. Exactly. I, I think, like, my birth name is not the same as my, um, my, not, it's not a stage name, for goodness sake, but mm-hmm. I took my mum's surname instead of my birth name because I needed to kind of disassociate with the person that was going to be critiqued. Because oh, wow. when I, um, when I started doing the YouTube videos and people weren't aware of my gender, they just saw the picture and they assumed I was a cis woman, I guess. Um, there was, it, it was the time period before people really knew what social media was and what it was going to be. And so many um, cultures and countries were accessing my videos and they were like horrified that my name was Joseph and I spoke with a deeper voice, but looked like that. And I always found it like, like completely destructive. And my go-to was to be snappy and defensive and say some snarky remarks back. And I I didn't like me being that person. And it was difficult because it was like, 
I can't really escape it because especially in like the the gay world, not necessarily the full LGBT world, but now that people know what RuPaul's Drag Race is and things like that, they have this language which is like the like the library is open we're going to read someone it's like you should be celebrating everyone's differences but you yeah. it's become acceptable almost to be snarky so it was very difficult and there were some crazy things that happened like a very crazy religious people in america contacted my mom and oh, yeah. yeah and all this like that when i started it was a big hullabaloo because i was one of a few people doing it but now i'm kind of glad that i'm doing different stuff because it's like I can be myself, but it's difficult because you can't, there are strictures with um, a lot of it. You can set up social media like filters now where you can't say certain words and you can't. So you do get a little bit of protection now, but I I understand the fears. (laughs) I think you just have to, you said disassociate by having a different name and that's healthy disassociation, I think is what you're referring to. And I agree with that. You have to just um, make sure there's a distance and that you don't become seduced by it yes the media stuff because you know i the fantasy that people have about me and not because i'm particularly special but anybody anybody who gets a media profile lots of the public will inevitably develop fantasy about who you are and your life and you know um how you live and you know what you they will fantasize about all sorts of things about your sexuality and whatever and it's important not to when you hear that and have that reflected back to you, that you don't become seduced by it and you don't also um, take it on board and feel that you have to do something or say something to change people's opinions. Mm. You don't. You know, people, people are going to have opinions about you and you don't have to do anything about it. You can just let them. It's not, in fact, it's not even any of your business. You can just let them get on with their their opinion. Yeah. <laughs> it's let them just let them do it. It's their, it's their thing. And it's sometimes that I guess it's the same thing as the therapy mirror. It's like you're they're actually saying something that's about themselves, but they're seeing it in you. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely perfect, Joe. They are telling you about them. They were telling you about their world and their difficulties. So if someone sends me a horrible message or makes some awful comment about me, in that moment I can look at them and say, Wow, you're really struggling. And I can say, And you're really struggling with this particular thing, this aspect of yourself. Because you're projecting it. It's just a projection at that point. Yes. Yes. Well, I've taken up so much of your time today and thank you so much for being a guest on my interview series. And I'm so happy to speak to you. And now we've become friends online, so we definitely have to get dinner when we're in the same area. Uh, <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah, we have to So, thank you so much, Lahani, for joining me in conversation on Agiprot interviews. I will link her website and how to contact Lahani below. She is a practicing therapist, so please reach out to her. And she also has a book coming out, which I'm very excited about. So, all of this information will be found in the description of this podcast. But please check out her work on her social media just by searching Lahani Noor. This was such a pleasure to talk through, and I'm really excited um, to read her book myself. So, please check back. All right, guys, thank you so much and see you in the next episode.